to the Batmobile. Atomic batteries to power. Turbines to speed. Welcome back, folks, to Black Hoodie Alchemy. I'm your host, uh, as always, Anthony Tyler, and this is uh, initially on the Fringe FM, and we're happy to be here. I want to thank Eric Millar again uh, for being on the show. Uh, we took a break last week, but uh, we're, we're back in full swing now, and Eric uh, helped me kind of stick the knife into orthodoxy and scholasticism by talking about comic books and philosophy and mysticism and uh i personally had a great time eric had a lot of great food for thought don't forget to go check out his book uh four color grimoire on the history of comics and mysticism uh really great food for thought there Um, i have a copy coming in the mail and uh we have today another special guest i had such a good time talking about comic books that i couldn't not uh, move on without bringing my friend and uh, host of the podcast, The Alchemical Mind, Mr. Martin Ferretti, um, on to dissect this a little bit further. So, <laughs> how you doing, Martin? Good to see you, man. I'm doing great, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad you're doing the podcast, dude. I've yeah. uh, I listened to every episode. It's awesome. Thank you, man. I really appreciate that. And uh, uh, yeah, I've been on Martin's show a couple times, and... It was always a, a real treat. We always got into some uh, wild stuff. And he's actually edited my book, Hunt Manual. Uh, and for those that don't know, Eric, the last guest on the show, actually did the cover art. So um, it's I think, it, it, if anything, it's telling where my roots were uh, with the inspirations and like the aesthetics, if you will, of that book. I was very much going for a, a sort of a horror indie comic route. And um, I, it... it, it the people around me that uh, that were willing to collaborate with me, I, I feel like couldn't have been better picks. So, um, yeah, we're um, the, the, the comic Thanks, books man. have. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And comic books have always uh, deeply influenced you. They've always deeply yeah. influenced myself and Eric. And uh, we're very much cut from the same cloth. You guys are just a little bit older than me. And in that and if in that way, I, I enjoy your um, your company even more because I'm able to keep in step and I also learn a lot more. And that's always fun because um, you guys have gone through phases of comic collecting and I've always been deeply invested in the uh, the culture of comic books to one degree or another. But like you is it you or is it some like your brother or something you do a, a comic book podcast or something like that right yeah yeah, yeah no actually I, I i run a whole network of podcasts there uh, you go podcasts. see yeah 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 i uh i don't have as much time anymore i'm uh i've taken a step back for a little while but yeah man i've been uh i started reading comics when i was like nine years old it uh it opened up my mind to a lot of crazy stuff uh, especially reading, I mean, some of the books that I'll talk about tonight, uh, you know, Eric and you talked about uh, Grant Morrison, for example, Alan Moore, those kind of guys. Uh, those are a big influence on me. I'm like Grant Morrison fan number one, dude. He's, uh, <laughs> he, he's, he's like my favorite. Um, and yes, you know, over the years, you know, think it comes and goes, right? Like when you hit teenage age, you're like, ah, I'm not going to read as many books. I got to, I got to spend time with girls, you know, I don't have time for comics. And uh, and then as you get older, you're like, oh, man, I kind of reminisce on my childhood and reading these books and you start back up. And, uh, you know, I I read a lot of books, man. I get like, I don't know, it's probably over 100 books a month right now. Um, 
so yeah, I'm, I'm very much into it. I love comics. I love the medium. And I, I especially love comics that make you think. And, you know, I was really happy to hear Eric, uh, which is weird, by the way, because he pronounces his name Millar. Uh, you have the, uh, the comic book writer, Mark Millar, but it's actually Mark Miller. Just everyone calls him Millar. I know, right? Um, That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, so it was cool to hear that last uh, last episode that you put out. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And there was some stuff where I was like chiming in, like you guys started talking about Frank Miller. Uh, and I'm like, oh, it's because he got mugged on the subway. That's why he got such like a crotchety old man. And uh, it, oh, it, it, yeah. there's a whole interesting story behind that. Yeah. Interesting. He, uh, yeah. He kind of yeah. went down the deep end. But uh, yeah, no, comics are, it's it's really cool that you're doing this uh, comic esoteric thing because there is a lot of crossover. And I think uh, most people don't think about it. Um, you know, I, I actually, when we were talking about setting this up, I told you, you kind of give me an idea of uh, starting a new podcast. So I'm still playing with it, maybe. I haven't decided yet. Yes. But, uh, well, you let me know whenever you want to pull a trigger on anything and if I can, what I can do to help out, man. That, yeah, yeah I'm, for sure. I'm always on board with that. Um, yeah. So for, for anyone that's not familiar with Martin in general, go check out uh, the Alchemical Mind podcast. It's very, uh, very studious, informal work. And that's what I love the most is talking about formal things in a, in a, a way that treats them seriously, uh, but also doesn't take you don't take yourself too seriously, Martin, but you, you, uh, you're sort of, it's, it's, I, I feel like it's very much that kind of alchemical hermetic principle of the, the idea of, um, taking the world as seriously as it needs to be, you know, and, and, uh, yeah. accepting that and taking yourself as seriously as you need to, there's limits to feeling capable about yourself in certain things. And then there's also, uh, there's, you know, it's important to have those uh, where you can you can push those limits in feeling capable about yourself. But you also it, it, it's important to have that humility, even if you feel right about yeah. certain things, yeah. even if you are right about those things, you're not going to be right about everything. And uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things, man. Um, you know, I, I've taken a step back from the podcast for a minute uh, to reassess some things. And, and I think part of the reason is exactly what you said. Sometimes you you start diving into things and you start discovering things. And uh, you kind of realize, like, am I just, like, overanalyzing this, right? Uh, am I just, like, expanding my ego and believing the things that I believe in? Um, and, uh, you know, you have the, the architect of the, the, the Joker. And, you know, you and I have talked about this before uh, on my podcast. Uh, but, you know, the, the Joker archetype isn't just, like, a pure destruction thing, right? Like, that's one interpretation of it. And, and there's people that really embrace that. But, you know, embodying that archetype is more just about having fun with life and being kind of carefree, right? Um, not necessarily like disregarding all rules or being like anti-establishment, although obviously that is part of it, but uh, just kind of learning to have fun, right? And, and poking at things on purpose just to see what happens, right? Uh, you know, if, if you want to just consider the whole thing as just a, a big dance, like that's what you want to do. Right when you have when you're dancing, hopefully you're having fun, right? Um, maybe not like if you're like a, a prom or some like you know sophomore dance or something, uh, where people force you to dance with others. But uh, you know, once once you start seeing just like how much BS there is in the world, but also how much beauty there is, like that's all you can do. And and embodying that archetype, I think, 
it is really important. And and you see that a lot in comics, man. So uh, obviously, right? There's there's a character called the Joker. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's and so I was. That's the fascinating thing about a comic books is they're they're hieroglyphic almost. They are able to you could easily tell a story. In fact, it's not completely uncommon for especially certain parts of comic books to go without dialogue and just to convey the story Mm -hmm. directly through the artwork and um, the, the the symbolic mimetic archetypal component of the comic book and the language that it conveys in and of itself is um, one of the, you know, the most quintessential mystical parts of the whole thing. Um, I was listening to Alan Moore earlier today and prep for this and um, it was it's certainly not a foreign idea to me, but he articulated it in a quick, poignant way. And I thought it was great. Um, just he was like, you know, each religion or spiritual philosophy is a symbolic alphabet. And it's just a different language that we're all speaking. And you have to understand in order to understand this, the spiritual language that they're speaking, you have to understand the phonetics of it or in the and the the, you know, just the basic alphabet the syntax all these things um and and that is part of what makes comics so fascinating because on the other end if you really follow the comic character the idea of the like superhero to its logical roots well i mean we we have those today i'm sure you've like come across these stories before um of people who actually get dressed up and they go and patrol big cities, you know, just foot mm-hmm. patrol. Um, there are people around all the time doing this stuff. And I don't know if it, it's probably, it's definitely not practical whatsoever. But, uh, you know, in many cases, these people seem to be like doing it in earnest and, you know, more power to them. But, um, and uh, the, the, most of those people are just kind of Batman style, like martial arts or whatever. But, I was thinking about this and I was like, well, I I can't think of exact examples of people using a quote unquote superpower in real life like that. But Hmm. there was that Stan Lee superhuman show. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Where? And you know what? I went back and looked at it because uh, or like read about it and the people in there. I didn't exactly go back and watch it because some of that shit is too slow paced for me. But there's fun food for thought in there. And you know, some of those people genuinely are like, if you're just being honest about it, they're pretty superhuman. They're not comic book level, but you know, there's a guy who can withstand up to 30 times the amount of lethal electricity that a human can. There's people who are like so quick with their reflexes that it like on a technical level, it's superhuman. There's, you know, there's photographic memory that is so impressive. It's basically superhuman. There's all sorts of stuff. Like, let me see. There was one guy that they had on the show. And this is a very legitimate thing. He's still alive as far as I know. And if he died, he's been very recent. It's a guy in, Oh, it's somewhere in Asia. I cannot remember, but he hasn't slept since 1973. That's like a super really? curse. Yeah. But that's crazy. That's super, that's super abnormal. Yeah. And there's Wim Hof, the Iceman. There's the monks that can control their body temperature. There's people who yeah. are completely numb to pain. So we might not have an example of someone like Wim Hof fighting or defeating crime because they're impervious or they can withstand cold temperatures. But we do have people that have superhuman abilities in real life. And we actually do have people that go out and fight crime in costumes in real life. So Mm -hmm. the idea of the superhero is actually a little anticlimactic 
is what I'm getting at in real life. And it's not so much, <laughs> it's not so much about the idea of physically getting in the get up and going and uh, fighting the crime. It's, it's all these deeper implications, like the idea of what if part of being responsible is saving your family from parts of yourself, you know, the secret identity thing. Like that's a, that's a deep concept that's woven throughout the fabric of most superhero comics and it's not something like you find readily accessible in other parts of the culture, but it's very poignant. It's very poignant, especially to uh, someone coming of age, you know, any sort of teenager reading yeah. comic books. I think part of that has to do with uh, your, your views on morality. Right. And, uh, and you and I have talked about, you know, good and evil and things like that quite a bit. Uh, I know that's a topic that really interests you. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of the opposite of you, right? Uh, you're, you're very interested in it. I mean, I, I like hearing about it. I like talking about it. Uh, but to me, morality is just kind of a figment of the imagination, right? And so, you know, for a lot of people, I think that's why some people end up losing interest in comics is they don't know how to find the right comics uh, that appeal to them, mm -hmm. right? There, I mean, there's, there's genres for everything, right? You can get like a slice of life where just like, Nonfiction stories retold in a comic. Uh, you know, there's stuff like uh, like Peepland, for example, is an example of that. I think uh, the author used to be a prostitute, and so she based her comic on that. Uh, you have just pure superhero comics like Batman, Superman, those kind of guys, uh, and, you, and you have things uh, that kind of transcend, right? And and sometimes people might find a little pretentious, like the Grant Morrison's and the Alan Moore's, uh, maybe a little bit of Neil Gaiman, who knows. And, and <laughs> yeah, and so it short, good. uh, short, uh, side bit there that I thought that was funny. Eric did not like Neil Gaiman. I was like, well, I mean, he's not that, yeah, I don't mind him. He's had some good stuff, sure. but I guess if you're splitting hairs, I, I'm not even saying it's because Eric said it. I've always thought that Neil Gaiman, um, did honestly find the right artists more so than some of the other, like Alan Moore, he, he I mean, I say this with a, a little bit of an exaggeration, but, you know, you could put together like a semblance of stick figure art. And if art, if, if Alan Moore is telling the story, he's going to find ways to express that. Like, you know, people like Alan Moore, uh, Grant Morrison, um, James O'Barr, because I consider The Crow mm -hmm. to be one of like the greatest magical that's great. works that's impacted me. Yeah. Like these people are are such artful storytellers that it uh, it's it's truly magic as far as I'm concerned. Well, and some of those guys you can't pair with like a bad, I don't want to say a bad artist, but maybe a, a less skilled artist um, like Alan Moore, for example. Right. I don't know if you've ever seen an, an Alan Moore script, uh, but it is like hyper detailed, right? <laughs> like each, each panel he described, it takes him a whole page to describe a panel. And, and a lot of writers don't do that. Right. They might have the dialogue and just kind of let the artist decide. And, and maybe some from of that the Marvel depends. method. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Just draw the comic and give it to me, and I'll write the, the dialogue for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, they don't really do that anymore. So no, no. <laughs> you know, to, to to give them that, but um, yeah, you have to have the right artist, right? And and he's got a method, and and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, you know, with with Gaiman, for example, Sandman, you can have a story where you have. A dozen different artists telling the the full arc of the story, um, because the 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 main character is just kind of amorphous, right? Dream just kind of is kind of a shapeshifter, 
And, and so you can do that. Whereas, you know, if you're doing a Swamp Thing book, I mean, Swamp Thing, Swamp Thing, right? It's, it's a dude that looks like a tree, right? If you're writing a Batman book, it's, it's Batman. I mean, he's got the little ears and the, and the cowl and the bat symbol, right? Um, so it just, it depends on how you work that in. And, uh, you know, I, I know you guys talked a little bit about Invisibles or yeah, the Invisibles, uh, last episode. And it's one of, um, oh God, now I forgot his name. From uh from Aeon Byte, um, oh Miguel, it's Connor. Miguel, M- Miguel loves talking about the Invisibles, right? Because yeah, he the, does the most gnostic comics ever created. <laughs> um, you know, the the Invisibles kind of had the same thing where each arc was had a different artist, and it didn't work as well there over something like Sandman because sometimes the artist didn't quite know how to convey the page in the way that he wanted it. Right. Um, and, and, you know, even if we're talking about like big name artists like, you know, Ashley Wood, for example, had that issue. And when they when they reissued that book in, in a later trade, they scrapped one of her pages and somebody else came in and redid it. So, you know, regardless of how many notes the author might have on the page, if if the artist doesn't get that, um, you're not going to get it through on the page. Right. And I think that's what's different with comics as opposed to any other medium is that it's not just the one person, right? Like, if you think Sandman, you think Neil Gaiman. Well, what about all the dozen artists that work on, on Sandman, right? right? Nobody thinks about that. They think about Neil. Um, comic, is it's it's a medium where you have, you know, a dozen people working on, you know, now it's like 22 pages, used to be more, uh, every single month. And, and it takes a lot of coordination to be able to do that. Um, like, yeah, you have to ha- have the idea guy, right? Like if you, when you have a movie, everyone talks about the director. Well, the director probably didn't write the movie, right? He doesn't act in the movie. Uh, he doesn't do the special effects or anything, right? Everything's hyper special effects now. Uh, but you talk about the director and why is that, right? Uh, comics is the same way. And, uh, and, you know, if you take the view of some of these writers that are really interesting to me, that's kind of how life works, right? You're, you're writing your story, uh, writing your story, creating your own myth, right? There's another Aeon Byte quote. Absolutely. Uh, and, and you have all these supporting characters on the side. But, you know, what's what's the story about, right? The story's about you. Uh, and sometimes you place yourself in it and sometimes you don't, right? That's up to the writer. Um, yeah. Would you like to go into um, some of Grant Morrison's magical philosophies and, uh, and comic oh, books? Yeah. Cause I know I, you would have... I ever <laughs> <laughs> there's cause we touched on it. Um, and uh, Eric yeah. was, I, I liked Eric's book so much because it was like as many parts historical as it was philosophical and mystical. Um, and I don't know that, um, it, 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 it was nice and encompassing, and, you know, so we got to touch on like, you know, because as much as I want to talk about Grant Morrison and Alan Moore, it's it uh, Jack Kirby, you know, very unsung um, uh, outside of the comic heads that know. Uh, so yeah. so it was great. You know, Eric had, was able to bring that extra touch, um, which you could as well, too. You're you, I would uh, I know you would probably uh, you would you would shirk it away, <laughs> but I consider you like. A comic historian, man. Like, you know what's up. Yes. Um, Listen, little, little on fact, I used to do, uh, for, for about a year, I did a, a Golden Age Batman podcast. Oh, wow. <laughs> nice. Um, and uh, that was a lot of work because I don't know if you ever read, like, Golden Age books. Uh, Golden Age being, bit. like, 30s and 40s. Right. 
uh, but they're they're very different, right? And <laughs> yeah. and a lot of people, for one, people don't like it because the art style is so different, right? It's very simplistic. Mm-hmm. Because back then, comics were made for kids, right? So you spend your you know two cents on a comic, five cents on a comic. Uh, you read it, you put it in your back pocket, you give it to your friend, your friend like you know wipes his face with it or whatever. Like it doesn't matter. And now that the <clears throat> the industry has kind of just changed so much. Yeah, collect. And to that point, before you get into Grant Morrison, um, I talked a little bit. Well, I was on your uh, podcast uh, the last time and we talked a little bit about comic books. And I forgot that I totally I would looked into this in the past, just like trying to find the dirty details of any comic book uh, corruption. And uh, we mentioned it last time, Eric and I, how uh, Stanley Media got into all that scandal and corruption and the dude who helped facilitate Stanley media with all the bogus investments is in jail this day for uh, trafficking and conspiracy and crazy stuff. But there's also like, it's I've, I've, I haven't seen it talked about much at all, but it's very just like, it's undeniable. It's without question. And it's just right there, low hanging fruit on the record that comic books the the era of pulp fiction magazines and all that was started almost specifically for uh money laundering and yeah. mafia gangster labor racketeering and you can find um the dude who started the seed money for what eventually became both marvel and dc and archie comics um he was like he was directly associated with uh dean o'banion um mm-hmm. a chicago mm-hmm. gangster yeah and and i couldn't remember so this is part of why I wanted to bring it up. I couldn't remember how he was related to Al Capone, but I, so I went and looked it up again. And O'Banion was the rival of Al Capone. Yeah. And so the dude who started up largely the comic book era, as we know it, was rivals of Al Capone. And after the uh, St. Valentine's Day massacre, where Capone's men were involved in, mm. in a street shootout and stuff, um, after they hit out for a little bit, they uh, Capone threw a party, a beach house party that... All of Annenberg, Mo Annenberg's top uh, journalists uh, went and attended. So it was all that interconnected mafia politics and comic books were right there. They were one of the driving forces. And um, um, Annenberg eventually, you know, went to prison uh, and was like arrested for all of these involvements. Um, So, yeah, propaganda, uh, organized crime. Uh, They were such a throwaway market initially that unsung and underdog artists actually got in there and used it as a way to break into entertainment and the artistry that they had been wanting to do. And, uh, and so comic books have a very, very interesting history and, uh, and it's come a long way from the, the, uh, the throwaway magazines that were used to uh, launder money. (laughs) Well, for sure. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, nobody ever talks about it. And I always found that like fascinating, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of people talk about how comics are just kind of like this throwaway entertainment. Uh, and yes, that's always been true. Um, maybe not as much now, right? It's not as popular now to collect comics, uh, but there's big money in it. And, uh, you know, one, one thing that's interesting about comics is people say that, well, all, you know, I miss the days when comics like didn't have a, a message, right? Well, there wasn't like a woke message in comics. Uh, comics always had that, you know what I mean? Like from the start, uh, when there was about gangsters, right? Like it was a commentary on gangsters, even though the gangsters were funding the comics. Uh, when when the war hit in the forties, like that Captain America became popular, like those kind of guys, right? Uh, Howling Commandos, all these comics. Um, 
because you want to talk about that kind of thing. Uh, and you see the shift like from the guys that grew up reading comics in the 40s and 50s and 60s as they got older and they're like, well, I want to write comics. And they come in, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And, and you have this big wave of just like a complete change in the way that comic stories are told, uh, particularly starting like mid 80s, right? Uh, maybe probably before Watchmen, but like that would be the, the first big book in the in the mid 80s that did this, where these guys that grew up reading these stories are like, well, you know, I've known these characters my entire life. I'm now a 30 year old man, a 40 year old man writing these characters. How do I write them? Right. And so they no longer become just little kid stories. Now they're bringing in real life issues, right? Like you mentioned, how do people deal with secret identities? Right. right? Um, you you want to make sure that your wife isn't killed, right? Like Spider-Man always has this thing where like, oh, well, what happens if they find out I'm Spider-Man, right? Even though like a million people know he's Spider-Man. <laughs> um, like what happens? How do I get, you know, how to protect Aunt May? How do I protect Mary Jane? Like how do I do all this stuff, right? Um I don't want to lose them like I lost my uncle, right? And so that's something that hits home for a lot of people, right? And and you wish, like, if you had these powers, how would you deal with that, right? And so those stories kind of relate into some of that stuff. Um, but then, of course, like, you know, again, we're talking about 70s and 80s. So some of these guys are going through, like, post-Korean War, post-hippie movement, right, um, into, like, a very decadent 70s. And, and how do you react to the change of culture between those decades, right? Because those are really big changes. Um, and, and so they put that into the comics. And I think that's the most fascinating thing about it is that, you know, you can read a comic as just a story to entertain you for, you know, 10, 15 minutes, whatever long it takes you to read it. Uh, or if you're reading a trade, maybe longer. Uh, but you can really dive deep into a lot of these things. And, you know, the it's always the case. The more you know... Uh, the more you see in things, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. It seems like there was, is it, comics were so underground and there was less of a spotlight on them for so long that people felt more comfortable combining random elements of things and just experimenting as well. And that's, um, and I think whether, it might've not always been intentional, but so often it was intentional, the idea of like, essentially a grown man writing a comic book and loving it, um, you know, like say Alan Moore mm -hmm. and um, uh, just kind of wanting to spit in the face of scholasticism and the establishment say, like, oh, you think this is for children? Well, let me give you some of this. And then, and then I'm just going to mic drop and walk away. I don't care what you do with it from there. Cause I'm just going to give you some sheer gold. That's going to explode your brain. And, right. and that's, cause that's just what I do. And, <laughs> and I'm going to move on to the next thing and boom, boom, boom. And, uh, and, and Grant Morrison, the same way, like you, the comic books are for children. I'm going to turn Batman into a raving lunatic. That's like struggling <laughs> with such serious neurosis that he's dressing in a costume and going in and uh beating people to a pulp on the streets like you know that was the whole idea See, but isn't, of isn't that Asylum. interesting though isn't that more interesting though than it is seeing a guy so beat much. up another guy right yeah um, you know comics are like modern day mythology if you if you care to look at them in that, that way right again it's all in your perspective um but you can really dive deep into some stuff man um I, I love Grant Morrison. Yeah, I've already mentioned that. And uh, I don't I don't want to get too deep into this because I'm sure you got a break coming up. But 
Um, you know, I remember reading like his Batman run is uh, is one of my favorites of all time, and uh, and people don't understand why. Um, but like, you know, Batman is one of these characters that have, has been around for so long, right? Like, you know, eighty years. That's a long time to tell monthly stories, uh, especially when you have you know. Now there's probably. I don't know. I'd have to look at my list, but there's probably like 12 or 13 different Batman books, like just Batman, right? Not like tangential Batman um, over 80 years. Right. So think about how interesting the character is, the the amount of things that you can do with the character. If you view it as more than just, a, you know, good guy, punch, bad guy. Right. The The world we live in is not good guy, punch, bad guy. It's very complex. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's gotten ever more complicated over the years. Uh, you know, it's almost like somebody did some like sigil magic at some point, right? There was like a, a big ritual and, and just the world changed, right? Um, you know, we, we can talk about conspiracy theories and then that, that might come up. Uh, there's a really great book, by the way, if you love conspiracy theories called Department of Truth, um, that deals with like the secret organization, uh, kind of in charge of like JFK assassination and like alien cover-ups. Um, like uh, Harvey Oswald is in there, like he's part of this group, you know, uh, and, and they kind of like modify truth, uh, kind of like the, the Philip K. Dick story. Um, oh God, which, what's the name of it? They made that terrible movie with, um, Matt Damon. Oh, oh God. Man. Something Bureau. Oh, the Adjustment Bureau? Adjustment Bureau. That's what it yeah, is. The yeah, the Adjustment Bureau. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, something I like that. Except, you know, Not that good. <laughs> no, the movie was not good. The, the book is great. The book is great. I don't think uh, I've read there's the there's a similar one called. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. short story, so it it won't take long. There yeah, is a okay. full length book that's a very similar concept called um, "The Lies of Locke Lamora, I think it is, um, and it's basically like in the vein of the Adjustment Bureau, except I mean spoilers if you haven't read you know like a fifteen year old book, <laughs> um, but but it turns out at the end that this this organization that's kind of like tweaking reality, um, like across various multiverses by the way, uh, was founded by this guy, and he kind of uh, birthed himself in a way, um, and so you have this like cyclical time thing going on where you know towards the end of the story he kind of basically has to decide if he's going to like recreate the universe that created him or if he's just going to kind of kill it there and timeline's going to adjust and go in a different direction uh really interesting book i can't remember who the author is wow um yeah and actually well we, we can talk about that after the break <laughs> yeah yeah sounds good there's a lot more to dissect here and um um, I think one of the biggest takeaways that uh, that Grant Morrison kind of brings to the table is just calling the elephant in the room um, and saying like comic books are, he uses the term like super sigils essentially and how art mm-hmm. in and of itself is, if you take the idea of the magical sigil as a bare bones thing where you take like the non-repeating consonants and then you make uh, a magical shape out of it that uh, becomes a sigil that you can use to sort of um, uh, broadcast thoughts and like energy, if you will, of the psyche. Um, wh- what happens if you go the whole nine yards, like, especially like someone like James O'Barr or um, like 
Jack Kirby where, you know, I'll give Jack Kirby the credit there where he's essentially creating the whole damn story on his own. Like that becomes such a powerful super sigil. We're going to jump into the break here real quick. I'm with um, Martin Ferretti here of the Alchemical Mind. This is Black Hoodie Alchemy. I'm your host, Anthony Tyler, and stick with us. We'll be right back with more comic books and philosophy. Listen, as we explore the mysteries of the universe, the unknown, high strangeness, consciousness, and our human potential, Lighting the Void is an eclectic program that strives to ignite the late night with stimulating conversations. Join us on The Fringe FM. Musicians experience a lot of frustration with music marketing and promotion. They have no idea how to get their music heard, and they're spending hours sending emails, making phone calls, and hitting up their friends to promote them. With our industry-powered digital marketing platform, we can set up your media plan in minutes. Our team will automatically distribute your music across all the best channels, so you can focus on actually making the music. Submit your music today on our website at mymusicpromoter.com. That's mymusicpromoter.com. The Natural Born Alchemist podcast is a podcast that covers topics like alchemy, shamanism, psychedelics, anarchism, and philosophy. Join Alex, that's me, and a multitude of guests on a quest to discover the nature of reality, of spirit, and of consciousness. Each episode will also introduce you to new music that you might never have heard before. You can find the podcast on most platforms. Simply search for Natural Born Alchemist or go directly to naturalbornalchemist.com. There you'll be able to find all the social media links as well. Freedom is in the mind. Do you want to escape the simulation? Well, join me, Jess Rogie, every week as we explore a variety of different realities to help expand our minds and find out a little more about this world we live in. Escape the simulation with me live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern here on TheFringe.fm. From parapsychology to pop conspiracy, and from parapolitics to health and esoterica, I'm Ryan Gable, host of The Secret Teachings, and I'll bring you all of this and more five nights a week right here on The Fringe FM. By using critical thinking and objectivity as keys to understanding, utilizing, and appreciating the secret teachings of all ages. You can catch The Secret Teachings Monday through Friday right here on The Fringe FM after Joe Rook and Lighting the Void. Thousands of people are having paranormal experiences with ghosts, demons, shadow people, dogmen, Bigfoot, and more. Their stories need to be told, and they are being told. Dark Waters, the renowned storyteller, invites you to join at IamDarkWaters.com. For just a few dollars a month, you can listen to some of the most hair-raising and compelling stories on the planet. You'll have access to real-life stories told by Dark Waters, thousands of hours of content. Their encounters are being told and told by the best. 
at IamDarkWaters.com. Listen to stories like The Rabbit Man, The Dogman Encounter in Silas, Alabama, The Man with No Face, The Other Woman, A Day Ahead of the Devil, Dogman Murder in Hurricane Ida, even a story of someone trying to kill a dogman. Louisiana Water Demon Stories. Sign up today and become a member at IamDarkWaters.com. That's IamDarkWaters.com. Welcome back, folks. Um, we are back on Black Hoodie Alchemy. I'm Anthony Tyler, and we're uh, we're talking with Martin Ferretti, um, editor of my book Hunt Manual and host of the show The Alchemical Mind. Um, and we're talking about comic books, philosophy, mysticism. And before the break, we were discussing a little bit of how, if you want to get technical with definitions, um, you could very much consider a comic book something like a sigil. Um, in fact, like a super sigil, as Grant Morrison liked to say, um, the idea of taking your desires and intentions and long story short, amalgamating them uh, in an artistic way to um, sort of uh, so it transcend the mundane elements of which is kind of the core essence of shamanism and magic. You use a combination of seemingly random things that can help you sort of prime your psyche and transcend the mundane elements and get into an altered state of consciousness that might project your intentions in ways, you know, that work with like chaos theory, the flap of a butterfly wing that we might be able to notice in some ways even if we can't understand the full process and everything that happens in between. And comic books, more than anything, they're hermetic, they're alchemical. They're not Christian or or Islamic or anything else. The, the, and the reason that is, even though they can be, they certainly can be, and there's no problem with that, but the core foundation of just the idea of comic books is hermetic because i mean not only was hermes the scribe of the gods and the storyteller but he was also interested in alchemy and um and and so the whole idea of magic and transcending mundane states of consciousness through something as simple as words and imagery is the most fundamental aspect of magic and metaphysical ideas and like the like magical thought in and of itself so um people might be like well comic books and magic like grant morrison is a crazy bastard for thinking that he's he's casting spells with his writing oh man not really not really especially not if you look at the roots of it and i want you to go (laughs) off a little bit martin (laughs) yeah 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 no dude dude. so you, you ended on the perfect segue um i uh I don't know if it was because of your discussion last time or what, but I started rereading uh, Flex Mentalo. Uh, and I, I know Eric brought it up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's a Grant Morrison book. And it, it fits perfectly in with this uh, super sigil or hyper sigil story uh, that you're telling. Um, you know, Grant Morrison's got the, these three books that he, he calls the hyper sigil trilogy. And, and Flex Mentalo is part one of that trilogy. Uh, the Invisibles is part two, and then The Filth is part three. Uh, the Filth is like, I don't think anyone's read it, but like me, you know what I mean? It's its one of these like super obscure books. Um, 
Whereas, you know, everyone knows the Invincibles. And mm-hmm. I think I think less people know Flex Mentallo unless you read like uh, Morrison's Doom Patrol run, right? Um, which, by the way, if you if you have HBO Max, you can go watch the Doom Patrol TV show uh, that's based on Great Morrison stories. And how is that? And Flex Mentallo. It's, it's really good. Nice. Really good. Flex Mentallo shows up in I think it's the season three um, with uh, with Wally. So. I'm gonna I'm gonna get into those real quick, yeah. Uh, but but I want to expand into this this hyper sigil or super sigil idea because uh, I think it's fascinating. Uh, I think probably everyone listening to this is, has some interest in in magic or at least knows a little bit about it mm-hmm. and is probably familiar with with the sigil, right? Definitely. And uh, you know, sigil's really simple. It's just like a symbol that you create uh, with like some kind, right? So. Say, uh, let's just go with being rich. Everyone wants to be rich, so let's just use, use that, right? So you have this thought in your mind that you want to be rich, okay? So actually, you can't use that because of the way sigil magic works, with chaos magic works. Um, you can't say, like, I want this. It would be more like, I am rich, okay? Right, so if right, you want to become point. rich, you don't, you don't say, I wish to do this, right? It's not like a genie in a bottle. Uh, you, because then you will you get more of the wish if, of wanting as, to be rich. Correct. Yeah, you get more yeah. wish than rich. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So, so you you act as if you are already are, are that thing or have that thing. Okay. So, if you want to be rich, you don't say I want to be rich. You say I am rich. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you write it down on a piece of paper. And and you don't write it down like I mean you could write down the sentence I am rich, um, but you want to do it in a way where like you're gonna create a symbol out of connecting these letters together, right? So maybe you just take the I and you draw it right down the middle of a page, and then you connect the A kind of maybe sideways so it looks like a, a, a triangle, and then maybe you do the M as little legs coming off the A, right? And so you create this symbol. Uh, out of all the letters of the intention that you want to achieve. Uh, that's a sigil, basically. So it just looks like, like a logo, we'll say. Uh, a hyper sigil is the next step above that, right? So a sigil is two-dimensional. Usually, like, sigils will be drawn to, like, ward of demons or, like, call angels or whatever, right? Um, you see this in movies all the time where, like, they draw a circle in a pentagram, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's a sigil. Um and uh, but a hyper sigil is like a four dimensional version of a sigil, which is two dimensional. Okay, um, a sigil is just a thing on a surface. A hyper sigil has like intent and energy and and life and and drama and personality, um, and and it takes forever to do this, right? So you hear stories of like Aleister Crowley doing this. Uh, like ritual for three years or whatever it was, right? And that's kind of what caused them to possess the house that uh, that he lived in and later died in. And uh, what's his name from Led Zeppelin ended up buying, right? Because uh, oh, he right. wanted to recreate, yeah, because he wanted to kind of recreate this uh, this ritual. That's the house on Loch Ness, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So that's one. That's one of the theories, right? That like Alistair Crowley kind of manifested Loch Ness. I love uh, that monster. idea so much. It's such a fun idea. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's great. You know, like, I mean, you and I both love tulpas, right? So this is yeah, perfect for that. Absolutely. Um, all right. So so instead of doing that, what you do, and this is the way that guys like Great Morrison view writing comics, 
is you want to achieve something in your life, but instead of just doing this little two-dimensional picture and, uh, you know, putting your energy into it, you know, it could be uh, like through masturbation, for example, that's a common one. You, uh, you draw your sigil and you basically jerk off every day. Uh, Crowley to, loved like, doing that. Your, yeah. 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 Smoking some that's heroin. You, you imbue your, your and... sexual energy <laughs> and, and, you know, doing whatever else he liked to do. Um, yeah. oh, let's keep Crowley. the podcast PG. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so, let's so see you if can that, do it that makes way. it in the final or cut. You could, <laughs> <laughs> or you can do it like Rhett Morrison does, where where you're you're creating this ritual over years of your life. Okay, uh, so here I'll I'll read you a quote from from Morrison about his work on the Invisibles, and this is like this is like peak magical ritual for Morrison is, is that book, right? Um, so he says, the hypersigil, supersigil develops a sigil concept beyond the static image and incorporates elements such as characterization, drama, and plot. So, you know, even just writing a poem, for example, could be a hypersigil. Uh, the hypersigil is a sigil extended through the fourth dimension. My own comic book series, The Invisibles, was a six-year-long sigil in the form of an occult adventure story, which consumed and recreated my life during the period of its composition and execution. The hypersigil is an immensely powerful and sometimes dangerous method for actually altering reality in accordance with intent. So in in Morrison's view, he's not just a comic book writer. Okay. He's a fictional character in somebody's story. And so in some of these books that he writes, like the Hypersigil uh, trilogy, the three books that I talked about, um, he he places himself into these stories. Uh and sometimes the outcome isn't so great. So, for example, as a result of the Invisibles, he talks about like um, he got some like flesh eating disease or something on his head uh, as a result of something that he wrote himself into in that story. Wow. Um, he's met some like uh, I think it was his ex-wife as actually uh, he met her through this uh, hypersigil ritual that he wrote in himself into the uh, the Invisibles and created this character uh, in that comic um, and then ended up later meeting a woman that looked exactly like this comic book character uh, and either dated her or married her for a little while. Um, like all sorts of crazy things happened as a result of that. And, and one of the things that came about as a result of it is he met these like, he calls them hyper sprites. Okay. They're, they're fifth dimensional aliens. This is a true story. Okay. According to Graham Morrison, um, where he was in Kathmandu, uh, high as hell on LSD. And all of a sudden, like the world started turning and it shifted and he was like in a completely different dimension. And these fifth dimensional hyper sprites, they look like, uh, you remember that movie, that game space invaders? Yeah. Definitely. Where you're, you're like shooting the little alien, you're the ship going around, you're shooting the little aliens just going back and forth on the screen. Yeah. Okay. It was like a, a group of these beings. <laughs> okay. Of course. Showed up and, and they revealed the nature of the universe to Grant Morrison. And, and one thing that it revealed to him is that just like he is a three-dimensional character writing two-dimensional characters, right? So a writer writing a comic book. Uh, they are fifth dimensional characters writing the story of all our lives, including Grant Morrison. And so they, they imbued this knowledge onto him. They showed him kind of 
all these universes like interconnected through these membranes or whatever. Um, and, and that led to him putting a lot of these crazy ideas into some of his books. Um, so that, that's the story of the hypersprite. Now, we, we can go a little bit into like time theories because Morrison's like big into time theory. Uh, so are you familiar with like A theory and B theory? I feel, I want to say yes. Right. I think I know what you're talking about, but go into it. We'll find out. <laughs> right. So, so, so eight, there's two theories. Of, well, I mean, there's multiple theories of time, but um, some of the earlier thoughts was that there's two theories. A theory is kind of like, you're watching a movie, okay? So a movie isn't just like a, uh, something that's playing out on screen. It's a group of pictures, right? And it doesn't translate as well now because everything's digital. But like when you had a film reel, mm -hmm. each there were different frames. And so in order to project the image onto the screen, you would pass light through each of these frames. Um, and so A theory says that this is the way that time works, right? This is the way that we perceive time. Uh, one event follows the next, follows the next, follows the next. B theory is kind of uh, more encompassing, where instead of you shooting the light through each frame individually, you're shooting the light at every frame at the same time. And so there isn't, there isn't a sequence of events. All moments happen at the same time, and they all, in, this, you know, in essence, last forever. Okay. So right. kind Isn't of that similar the premise, to eternalism. That's like basically the premise of uh, Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut is someone being unstuck in Correct. B time. Yes. Gotcha. Which is a fascinating Correct. book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Awesome book. Yeah. Awesome really book. great. I, dude, I read that when I was like 13. It blew my mind. Yeah. I was like, how am I reading this? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. That is an alchemical, but, uh, magical work right there. Most definitely. If uh, any listeners have not read that, sure. go check it out. It's not so, terribly long either. So, so, so that's B theory. And so how does this translate to comics? Well, it's super simple if you've ever read a comic, uh, because when you open up a comic and you look at the page, you, you don't see one panel and then go to the next panel and go to the next panel. You see all panels on the page at the same time. Okay. Um, you know, whatever, it could be a full page spread. It could be, you know, three panels. You can be uh, Alan Moore and do nine panel grids the whole way through. Um, but you're seeing, all these moments in time happening together okay and and so he plays with this kind of thing um there's a, a really fantastic like multiverse spanning story called uh, multiversity uh which he wrote and and in one particular one he takes the atom which is uh like an, an old time like it, this is like pre-dc right this is one of the the characters that dc purchased uh, as they became DC comics out of national um, and was the inspiration for, um, I can't remember the, the character's name now, the, the blue guy from Watchmen. Okay. Oh, Dr. Manhattan, um, right? Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. He was inspired by uh, this character. Okay. Uh, matter of fact, all the characters in Watchmen are inspired by these characters. The Charleston is, was the company, or not Charleston, uh, Carlton, Charlton, Charlton. By the way. Uh, so you have it, like the question became Raw Shark and all these guys. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. That makes sense. And I I didn't realize until recently, I re-remembered the fact that um, one of the dudes, or am I remember, uh, misremembering this? Isn't one of the dudes in uh, Watchmen uh, Mothman? Isn't that his name? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And did they change that yeah. for the movie? I, didn't they make him like an owl or something? 
it, so it started out as uh, as as Mothman. He's there's been like different iterations. I think by the time DC bought the character, it was already Owlman. Oh, got you. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there there was those characters are very complicated. Tell uh, me same about with, it. Like, <laughs> if, if you if you ever read like um, there used to be a company called Gold Key, which I love. Um, matter of fact, I just finished a, a full run of Doctor Solar, Men of the Atom. Uh, to like beautiful hand painted covers. Okay, um, these characters have been like tossed around by like, like so many companies since since uh, Gold Key went out of business that like nobody really knows who has the rights to some of these characters. Uh, like there's a company that kind of pays for the rights to publish their books, but even then, like there's been several like lawsuits involving these characters because. Even through agreements, like nobody really knows who has the rights. Uh, like even DreamWorks owned all the gold key characters, like Turok, uh, Son of Stone, oh, uh, Turok, Solomon, Adam. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, there were that was gold key. Okay. Um, so if you could find like the the run from the sixties, they're the covers are beautiful. Wow. Uh, matter of fact, do I have one? I thought I had one here somewhere. Hang on. Oh, nice. He's gonna show me a comic book. Here you go. So this is Dr. Solar, Man of the Atom number one. Wow. I don't know if you can see the whole thing. There's a glare. Uh, but well they're enough, like beautiful. Absolutely. Hand, these are all hand painted. Wow. Yeah, these are all hand painted. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah, I bought, I bought this one a few years ago. It's beautiful. Nice. Man. Uh, and they're all like that. Uh, and that one's interesting too. Like it's more of a generic superhero type thing because, again, it is from the 60s and they appealed to kids. Uh, but it's basically about uh, the scientist that. Uh, doing some like radioactive like nuclear testing um basically gains the ability to manipulate and control all space and time uh so very similar to dr manhattan in a way i love it um but anyways so so yeah so so the atom was the inspiration for watchmen and and you see that a lot in when when morrison was doing this multi-city run because there's a there's a couple of pages it's like a two-page scene where the Atom is like reading a comic book because again, this is like a multiverse thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, there's, we don't have time to go into like all the multiverses in, in DC and Marvel. Um, but like every t- sometimes when they create like a new version of something, they place it on like a different earth, right? So you have like earth right. or two or three or, uh, so like, for example, in Marvel, the comics all take place in like earth 616. Right. Uh, but the movies are in a different earth. So that's why the stories aren't the same in the movies as they are in the comics. Okay. Because it's like a multiverse version of the comics. Um, and even within the comics, you have like dozens of these. And yeah. so it was such a problem that, uh, like at one point DC rebooted, right? So that's why you have all these crises, right? Like final crisis, for example, um, where they need to like get rid of all the different multiverses and narrow down the line because, you know, we gotta, we gotta save money. We can't put out 300 books. We can only put out 50. So let's do this event where like something happens to the multiverse and it implodes and now we have this core group of characters in this one earth okay but over time of course like the earth star piling up again right yeah. so they have these crises events all the time um anyway so so he's trying to fix this in a way and and so he, he uses the atom to do this and the atom's reading a comic book of one of these earths and he's trying to explain to somebody how his powers work and he's like you see this? I'm reading this comic. It's a 2D comic. 
And I, it doesn't matter how I read it, right? I can start on the first page. I can go to the last page. It doesn't make any difference to the story, right? Because the story is already contained in this comic. It's just my perspective of it is changing because I can choose which page or which panel I look at. Um, and also what doesn't change is I, I know all the dialogue of every character at any point because it's already written, okay? This is how my powers work in your world. So imagine if somebody was reading a three-dimensional comic, okay? Uh, and so that's how he kind of explains this, this ability to uh, live in B time, right? Where you you see all time, right? You, you get this in in people talk about God being omniscient, omnipresent. Um, for Morrison, that's that's what it is to be God. It's to transcend time, to not see time as just a series of events, but to be able to pick and choose which time you look at at any point. Okay, and that's the job of the writer, and of course, is the job of these fifth dimension hyper sprites that are creating our comic book, right? Like we're a comic book that they're writing for their kids. Okay. And, and that's basically his, his overall gist of how the universe works. I love that. <clears throat> so very hermetic in and of itself too. And mm -hmm. it's, it, it, it really touches on how I've always, certainly not just me, but um, how I've always interpreted something like simulation theory, because uh, even like on, on an initial basis, uh, my first learning about something like simulation theory, it was never like, oh, so this means I'm on a hard drive somewhere. It, it's more like, the, <laughs> yeah, it's more like the layers of the onion are so seamless in many ways. And uh, reality doesn't quite have um, the, the, the fundamental reality isn't so much physical as we think. And, um, um, the idea that, uh, the, like our intuition in many ways, um, is something that kind of exists outside of time is something I've always thought. And the idea that, um, art in and of itself and the expression of our intuitions is something that, um, harkens to the simulation idea that we it's something alchemical the seeds of life going and and just because so let's say that we are uh essentially um a comic written by um some extra dimensional deity like it's not where it ends that's how it started you right. know so people thinking that like oh in my life what is the point of my life now it's like it didn't change even if that is the case um yeah. so if anything it's just you know, the universe to scale, everything is a matter of scale. Um, and, and even your perception and what, you know, is important to us might not be important to other people and goes like that for, for deities as well. And, uh, a, or whatever. For you, infinity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this idea that. Yeah. For infinity. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, that it, I, th that's how I naturally perceive uh, existence. It's always growing outward and nothing is necessarily the core of anything. It's all just branches and sprouts just going further and further and intertwining with each other. So I, I, I thoroughly enjoy that idea um, because if anything, I don't know, it kind of, there's many different, uh, you know, pieces that we could look into from here, but to keep it and um 
as cogent as possible and to stick with the comic book theme, like the idea of symbols and ideals. Like I was, uh, you know, Grant Morrison talks about this. I was listening to Alan Moore talk about this earlier, just um, that naturally uh, hermetic idea of the idea space or um, the Mm -hmm. imaginal uh, Akashic records as Casey put it. And um, um, how, and I mean, that's a platonic idea too, right? Absolutely. That all knowledge exists always. And all you're doing, you're not learning anything. You're just remembering it. Right, right. Absolutely. And yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's something fundamental about that. Like um, um, Grant Morrison talking about how, you know, what did you do to conceptualize the hunt? You would draw a cave painting of already having killed the animal and then you'd go out and kill it. Like it's a, it's something that drives at the same component as like a positive affirmation, just telling yourself that you're going to have a good day and then going out and doing it. And, and that's what art is. That's what people don't get sometimes is you're just, or you're just sitting there like writing or just painting, like you're changing the world right there. It's all in scale, right? It's all to degrees, but you are changing the world right there. Truly fundamentally. See, and and this is one of those things, right? So listen to you guys and I'm reading Flex Mentalo and here comes Eric talking about Flex Mentalo. So let's talk about Flex Mentalo. Let's do it. Um, so this is like one of the the most underrated Grant Morrison books, I think. Okay. Um, it's not very long. I think it's like four issues. I don't know. Something like that. It's pretty short. But um, Flex Mentalo shows up in, in Doom Patrol, right? And he's... Uh, like man of muscle, Flex Mentello, man of muscle. He looks like uh, a carnival strongman. Okay, <laughs> he's a really buff guy, super tall, and he's wearing his like tiger loincloth. Okay, and uh, he's got his like sidekick Wally. Okay, and Wally's got some like weird abilities to like reshape reality, and so as a result, like he in Doom Patrol, he gets enlisted by um, something like the Adjustment Bureau. Um, to like create weapons out of his imagination in order to battle like the forces of evil. Okay. <laughs> so, so that's Doom Patrol. He takes this idea and, and goes further in it in, in the Flex Metallo comic, um, where it's kind of like an alternate version, an alternate reality version of the events in this Doom Patrol couple of issues. Uh, Wally dies, by the way, in Doom Patrol um, pretty soon after. But um, so in, in this miniseries, Wally is a comic book writer. Again, he likes to inject himself into these stories, right? Because he's creating this hyper sigil. And and he wants to learn more, not just about himself, but how the universe works. And he does it through comic book characters. And so Wally is, um, he's a a writer. He's kind of a failed writer. He's always like doped up on heroin and and all kinds of crap. Um, He was in a band at some point. and so that's led him to lead this kind of crazy wildlife. Um, but but in each of these issues, you see like a different version of Wally, right? Um, so you see like a, a young kid Wally, you see a teenage Wally, you see an adult Wally, and then what I like to call the God Wally, okay, or the transcendent Wally. And and I found that fascinating because this is kind of how 
uh, arc progressions work when you're writing, right? You have, uh, you know, the hero's journey, and this is what, what Wally's doing. Uh, even though he's not the, the main character, he's not the titular character, right? It's Flex Mentallo, this, this fake superhero who in this alternate reality from Doom Patrol uh, knows that he's a comic book character, okay? Uh, somehow he learns this, and so some of the events kind of transpose between the real world of Wally and this comic reality of Flex Mentallo. And, and Flex is, he quickly and early on in the story, he gets this message on the TV that um, there's a, a coming apocalypse and only he can save, save the universe. Um, but in order to do this, he has to like bring the gang back together. Okay. So we learn about all these like basically golden age style superheroes um, that he needs to go find in order to stop the apocalypse. Uh, so as the story progresses, uh, you learn just how intertwined these stories are, because uh, this kind of has happened before and it will happen again. Because at some point in the past, this group of superheroes decided to leave reality, leave the real world and like transplant themselves to the space station in like a luminal realm uh, wow. where they can kind of watch over Earth and and watch how humanity progresses and see if they can gain the ability of creation right of of fantasy and and bringing that to life essentially becoming gods just like the superheroes okay uh this is something that morrison loves to do right like in, in justice league he did it a bunch right that's the most obvious uh some people hate his justice league run because it's like <laughs> very on the nose right like, like superman and zeus right Wonder Woman's in no, Ashes Hermes, like so it's obvious. Um, so some people don't like it, but here you don't have that because you don't have the knowledge of all these other characters. Um, anyway, so they're kind of just watching, and he kind of gets the game back together through all this hilarity that ensues. Um, and it turns out that like the fact, which is the the villain that gives him the message of this apocalypse, is the alternate reality version of Wally, the oh, writer wow. that created him. Okay. And, and Wally uh, in the meantime is kind of reminiscing. So the story is told from Wally's perspective. And so he's reminiscing through his whole life. Um, and you learn that as a kid, Wally met one of these superheroes um, and told them that the reason that there's no superheroes anymore is because of this apocalypse that had happened and to prevent that they had to leave and watch humanity evolve. Um, and so he remembers this. And so he's writing all these comics based on this guy that he met and his friends, superheroes, who are also the superheroes that actually exist. They're the real world gods in this luminal space, uh, you know, projecting their idea of perfection and, and evolution down onto them. And so at the Damn. end of the story, basically, Wally realizes that he is going to cause the apocalypse and he has to decide, do I want to destroy this universe or do I want to recreate it from scratch? And so basically the, this, this luminal multiversal space like explodes out of Wally's chest and, and the world begins anew. Wow. Damn. Yeah. So, I so got to read that. Mentello. Yeah. Wow. It's really good. It's really good. Dang. That is, that is mind bending. And you just, you just gave a synopsis and that synopsis is mind bending. <laughs> I can't imagine what the read is like. That's crazy. <laughs> And also reminiscent of um, the the ending of Holy Mountain, 
as well, which yeah. is just a naturally alchemical motif as well. And timeless. Yep. I never get tired of yep. that. Just the whole, it's like, it's the breaking of the, of the fourth wall, but not in like a Deadpool knock, knock joke way, which can be fun too, but like in a really like head breaking way. And, um, and in a way that truly touches at the core of like chaos theory and chaos magic, you know, for anybody that still doesn't know that term, just the idea of magical thought being uh, 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 like presupposed by chaos theory, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> um, um, but, but see, isn't that interesting though? And then you, know, you, you, you can look at it on different levels, right? Yeah. So, at no point is is Wally or you know Grant Morrison in essence uh, any different from the comics that he creates. So if you're reading a Grant Morrison book, you're not just reading a story that he wrote for somebody to enjoy. Um, like yeah, he's getting paid for it, but you're reading like an aspect of Grant Morrison. Yeah, right? this is the idea of the the sigil, um, where the things that he creates, he's basically, I guess, literally manifesting into reality, right? It might not be around you, but it's contained in, you know, this 24 page story. Uh, and, and I mean, that, I think that's fantastic, right? It's, it's, it's a very different idea and it's very philosophical, right? And that's why a lot of people don't get guys like Grant Morrison. They're like, ah, he's so pretentious. Let me go. I just want to see dudes punch each other in the face. I'm like, that's great. You can do that, right? There's a comic for everyone. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, I, uh, so what are some other characters that, uh, uh, while we're on the subject that are like, whether they be, um, super mainstream or not, just some things that were integral to you and your magical ways of thinking. Um, so, I mean, you know, I love Batman. Okay. Yeah. So there's, there's a few characters that I really, really enjoy. Uh, some I don't talk about as much cause they used to be more obscure. I guess they're more popular now. Uh, Batman's always been like my thing, right? Uh, when I got into comics, I, I picked up a Captain America comic, and then as a result, I picked up Avengers, and I was like, I want something else. And then I picked up Batman, right? And that was my something else, and I stuck with that. Um, another character is Moon Knight. So there's a Moon Knight show on Disney Plus right now. Okay. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, because you, I, I've heard you mention Moon Knight, and he's one that I always read. So I'm very, I'm, I'm very familiar with the character, but I always mm-hmm. read him as uh, like a team up character. I never read his own stories. Um, and it was, uh, it was over the years that I, I learned more about his character and what a fascinating character. And it's great for comic books and it's so comic book in and of itself, because it goes back to what I was saying earlier, like how in real life, superheroes are a lot more anticlimactic. Like the moon Knight is this, this uh, sort of mystical white cloaked Batman. And then he's got, I can't remember his person, the names, but he's got the one personality that's like the multimillionaire playboy. And then just if, as if he wasn't busy enough with all that, he's also a cab driver. Like what is going on, man? Comic books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is this guy doing? Yeah, How does my- he have time to keep all this straight? <laughs> Moon Knight's great, man. I'm actually glad you described him that way. Cause for a lot of people, like this is probably not true maybe in the past five or 10 years, but, but throughout most of his life, uh, his comic book life, he's kind of been like the poor man's Batman. Okay. In many respects. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, which, you know, for me as a collector was great because, so I own, I have every, every appearance ever of Moon Knight, except the first one. Okay. Oh, wow. uh, Werewolf by night 32, uh, because that's like a $5,000 book. Right. So I'm not spending five grand on a comic. 
Um, but because he, he's been less popular, it allowed me to read more stories. Whereas Batman, like, I own a lot of Batman, like, really far back. But, uh, you know, once you start getting, like, un- I mean, now it's probably, like, under issue 400. But it used to be, like, until you got to the 70s, like, they were pretty affordable books. Um, once you went older than the 70s, you know, you were spending, like, you know, 50, 100 bucks. Now, like, three, four, five, six hundred dollars $600 for a comic. Wow. Um, and so it's kind of out of reach. But um, but yeah, Moon Knight Moon Knight's great, and and he's progressed a lot over the years. So he does show up in a lot of books, right? So he's been in like Secret Avengers, uh, a lot of team up stuff, yes. Um, but he's he's had a lot of his own series, uh, usually not all very long lived. Um, I wish I was in the other room. I I actually a couple months ago got a custom bound uh, two volume collection of all his books um there's this guy in nebraska uh is it nebraska or i can't remember somewhere out midwest uh omaha bound is the name of the company that's why i thought nebraska but i think he's in missouri um he takes comic books uh rips rips them out of the spine and does custom collected editions wow and so so i i purchased a two volume it's, it's every probably the first like 20 years of Moon Knight books. Like each one is like, you know, this thick, right? Like four or five inches thick. Um, and they're just like the comics, but made into a hardcover. Um, so, you, so you get that like sweet old comic book smell. <laughs> I love that so much. Yeah. Cause that's the, one of the best parts of comic books. You walk, even yeah. just walking into the comic book store, you just get hit with that smell. That's great. Yeah. Well, see, and so because of that, I guess technically I do own the first appearance because it's in that book, right? Oh, nice. Um, nice. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't have to pay five grand for that one comic because, you know, he rips the pages out, right? Uh, I think I paid like four or five hundred bucks for like this two volume collection. Uh, beautiful. It's really beautiful. Um, anyway, and so. What was the name of the Omaha Press for anyone? O- Oma- that Omaha Bound. Omaha, Omaha Bound. Bound. Yeah, yeah. For anyone that might be interested in that. Because that's a pretty, that's a niche, fun, artistic thing there. Um, yeah, yeah. And he, he always does like projects with artists and, and writers. But like if you get in touch with him, he'll he'll do like custom uh, comic binding. As that's well. cool. That's it's awesome. not cheap, but but it's it's cool. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. What There's nothing about the collector mentality that is cheap in the long run. <laughs> Um, You're but right. that's, that's, that's what's great about it. Um, so, and for those that are not uh, familiar with Moon Knight, he's schizophrenic, right? That's why he's, or, or is he just have multiple personalities or it's all baked in there or what? It, it depends, man. It's, <laughs> it's a long, like complicated thing. People try to write some of it out. People wrote some of it back in. Uh, you know, if, if you want to get into the character, you want to start with like Warren Ellis's run. Okay. Uh, Beautiful art. I think it's like that. De- uh, Declan Shelby and I can't remember who else. Greg Smallwood uh, were the artist. Uh, really great art. But Warren Ellis is one of these guys that just like writes amazing work anyway. So you know, if you get a chance to read something like The Authority that he did uh, or Planetary, uh, it's fantastic. If you if you want some like dark stuff, he wrote uh, Hellblazer for quite a long time. Um, so really, really worth uh, checking into. I think he's. I don't know what he's writing now. Um, I think the last thing he was writing was like James Bond comics. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, Dang. he always had like his buddy and his girlfriend that kind of like 
you know, went on adventures with him in, in some essence. Uh, but when, when he took over, he like really played on this like psychological horror theme. And, and the thing about Moon Knight is, you know, there, there's a lot of mythology in there as well. Um, cause he's, he's a spirit of vengeance. Uh, and, and he's like enlisted by the god Khonshu, uh, who's the Egyptian god of the moon to like enact vengeance on wrongdoers. Right. So like, whereas Batman, like he, yes, he fights crime, but like, all he does is like put him in Arkham Asylum and they just escape anyway, right? So who cares? <laughs> um, like Moon Knight just like kills people violently. And uh, and he does that through this relationship he has with the god Khonshu. And so not only does he have multiple personalities, but he's got this like schizoid thing where he's constantly talking to Khonshu. Uh, and Khonshu kind of tells him what to do or where to go. And he's kind of enslaved by Khonshu in a, in a way because uh, Khonshu brought him back to life. Um, after he was almost dead, right? And so they, they play on some of this in the show. Um, like, if you want an entertaining show, like, it's fine. But it's, uh, you know, it's a Disney show, right? right. So, like, how, how deep are you going to get? Um, but they, they do play on some of the themes. And, and some of the stuff is done, like, kind of interestingly. But um, the, the, is, is Moon Knight one of the only schizophrenic um, superheroes? Because that in and of itself is a very interesting concept. Yeah, I, I would say so. I know there's also Marvel has the Sentry, which is like one of their like renditions, like very on the nose renditions of Superman. And it's this uh, for anyone that doesn't know that like this uh, just extreme, like the most neurotic person you could possibly get, like suicidal and self-loathing, doesn't like the world around them, thinks that very nihilistic. And but they have the power was like a thousand sons or something. He's basically yep. the equivalent to Superman. And he's treated as like this, uh, like Armageddon weapon by the government. And they're always trying to, so the, the thing that's so powerful, they're always trying to like work with him with like therapy and get him on the right medications and stuff. Because if he has a temper tantrum, everyone is be, being annihilated. And that's a fascinating con like that really is turning, um, the, uh, and it's not, uh, the century is like by the time Marvel created the century, it was already a played out trope, but it's a fascinating yeah. idea in and of itself. Um, and I actually, I'm going to do an episode at some point um, about um, schizophrenic serial killers that went on killing sprees nice. because of, because God told them to. So yeah, there's a lot of those. There really is. Yeah. And so this whole idea of like the idea scape and the, the dream space, the Akashic records, whatever, and the idea that it's tangible and it's just not immediately tangible. You have to do the trickle process. You have to grow the seed and sprout it. And then it comes down and through and it manifests in the real world and in, in ways that you can take a systemic approach to. Well, just because you're doing that doesn't mean you're on the right track. You could right. be doing that process and still be completely losing your goddamn mind. And I don't know, comic books one of the reasons comic books uh, it's, are, are able to go in that hermetic artistic sentiment, uh, able to go a next level beyond just like traditional philosophical writing or food for thought is comics are always, especially at their core, you know, not like um, the, 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 the glitziness that they've become in some ways today, but they're always trying to push the envelope and um and kind of like insult people's sensibilities in many ways. Yeah. If uh, if you want to read a really good century story, that's not just like this tropey, like messed up Superman. 
Um, Jeff Lemire did a miniseries uh, not long ago, probably four years ago. It's like a four or five issue mini um, in which it plays on this idea of the government has to control them. And so they basically like he thinks he takes medication every day, um, but really he's like hooked up to this like VR thing. Oh, um, where it just like feeds him like the perfect reality for him wow. where like he won't go crazy. So it's like kind of Truman show in a way. Wow. Um, and once he realizes it cause it gets a little wonky um, and he ends up fighting like his, his sidekick who, you know, ex sidekick actually when he was a kid um, ends up fighting him because like the sidekick has to kind of turn evil because he realizes like what's going on. Um, and, and in a way that like that's the century's therapy to be able to overcome the fact that he's so messed up is to realize like what happens if he continues down this path, which is what the sidekick did. Um, really good. Really yeah. good. Wow. Fascinating. Um, and yeah, that, I've always loved that comic books are so readily willing to uh, want that they, they, they just kind of destroy the tropes that they themselves developed. Um, uh, I, I I like that a lot. And even though this is a character that helped develop the tropes um, still, I've always had, a, and it's super corny, but I've always had a little bit of a love for Ghost Rider. Um, even though he's not yeah. done uh, a lot of justice with some of the story. I see sometimes he hasn't gotten the best writers and sometimes he's just used uh, as like a, a, similar to Moon Knight, just slapped in as a, as like a, a, a team up guy. But the whole idea of, someone <laughs> being so far gone that they actually sold their soul to the Marvel comics version of Satan, but they're like, I still kind of want to be a good guy. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, yeah. such an uphill battle. Like you almost might as well not even try at that point, but he does anyway. And yeah. that is, that's cool. And he also has a flaming skull and he's on a motorcycle. So that helps, they, but <laughs> they, they just relaunched it. I think it's in like issue two or three. Uh, oh, Benjamin really? Percy writes it. Yeah, it's really it's like a horror version of of Ghost Rider. It's really good weird. because those were always like I uh, I remember Garth Ennis uh, wrote a lot of good Ghost Rider uh, when I was growing up, and um, they whenever they just really leaned into that um, uh, like war between heaven and hell angle, and and that kind of that horror that metaphysical horror angle where mm -hmm. it almost got Lovecraftian. That is where that's the sweet spot for Ghost Rider. Yeah, that's, man. that's sweet good spot. Stuff. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. What do you think of John Constantine? Uh, it depends. Yeah. He's had his ups and downs. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, I think every character's uh, had their ups and downs. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think, you know, that Hellblazer series that I was talking about was really good. Um, if you, if you get the, like some of this, the vertigo stuff with Constantine is really good. Um, once John Constantine goes like mainstream DC, right? Um, so like they had him in like Justice League Dark, for example, oh, yeah. uh, it loses some of that because you can't tell like the gritty stories because you're trying to appeal to mass market, right? Um, kind of disnifying it. But uh, yeah, no, I love the character, man. Uh, just the, the characters like that are like Zatanna, for example, uh, who oftentimes like plays around with, uh, with Constantine are really interesting, right? Like Zatanna is like a kid's magician by day, but like a powerful sorceress by night, right? Like that's super cool, right? So like your your secret identity is just like a play on who you really are, right? Like yeah. that's awesome. Um, yeah, I, I love those characters. I just, there's just not as big an appeal for that kind of thing anymore, you know what I mean? Um, and so like, you can still get cool stories, 
But, uh, you know, like Disney bought Marvel. And so when that happened, like they kind of made things more like the movies and mm-hmm. it lost some of the, the luster. Um, and DC is just kind of like in a weird spot, right? Because their movies don't do as well. Um, and they try to make it more movie-like, but it doesn't work. And, you know, old heads get pissed off and new people love it. But, like, new people don't buy a lot of books, right? Mm-hmm. Like, comics are really, like, an adult thing now, right? They used to be kids' comics. Now it's, like, the kids who just kept reading comics their entire lives, that's who reads it. And so, there's not that many young kids reading it, right? Um, like, young kids go on YouTube and watch people read comics, right? Or they, they watch anime or read manga, like, things like that. So... It's just a very different, different field. Yeah. So we'll, we'll start rounding home plate a little more here. And, um, you know, we've run the gamut a little bit. We've talked about um, a reality and what comics play in the role of questioning reality. And uh, we talked about some of the practitioners. We talked about some of the great characters. Um, I, you know, some of the history. Uh, I think a lot of food for thought for any real comic heads out there. So as someone that has an esoteric viewpoint, Martin, um, and someone that is also has a deep affinity for comics, uh, just out of curiosity, what do you see as um, the future of comic books as like culturally and like market wise? Because it seems like it's just going in a point now where, you know, all things run their course. So I'm not knocking it or anything. And I do enjoy a good superhero movie. I've seen plenty of good ones, uh, but it seems like it's just going to veer further and further into this mainstream area. And eventually, if ever in varying degrees, cause it will always be there. The underground comics will just kind of, I think there will be more of a separation of the superhero comic and the indie comic in the long run, because yeah, that's, um, I don't think superheroes call, can survive man. in the comic realm as what they're becoming as well. You know what I mean? It, it's a tough call. Uh, you know, we, we have a different, very different model of publishing than, than other places. Um, so, you know, like comics in France, for example, are huge. Like the European comic scene is big, uh, especially in places like France. Um, they don't put out 22 page comics once a month, right? They put out graphic novels, uh-huh. right? Like once a year, or every two years, whatever. Okay. Um, like uh, Black Sad, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's about this uh, like anthropomorphic cat detective. Incredible book. Yeah, it's, nice. it's incredible. It's incredible. Um, just uh, the, the way that Europeans do comic is very different. Uh, I know you guys talked about Jodorowsky a little bit uh, with mm-hmm. Eric. Um, I love Jodorowsky. Like, I've got collections of all his work. And, you know, that's the type of comic that, like, makes you think, well, you know, comics aren't just, like, a thing that I'm going to put in my pocket and throw away after I'm done with it. It's like, I'm going to read this and read this and read this. And every time I read it, I pick something up that's new. Um and you know you you have kind of a mix of those things in in Japan, right? With with manga, where they put out like I mean those things come out weekly, right? But they're putting out like two hundred page books every week, yeah, which is insane. Like by <laughs> one guy, yeah, right. Um, it's like going back to like when when comics first started here, right? Like you, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee and all these guys mm-hmm. were like they were cranking them out, man, right? And like the the pace that guys like Kirby worked at is unreal. Right. Like guys have a tough time doing like one or two issues a month now. I mean, Kirby was doing like 10 bucks a month by himself. Um, and, and you have this kind of thing in Japan. So, I mean, will comics survive in the US? I don't know, man. Like for a while, everyone called for the death of comics and, and everything was going to trade. And that hasn't been the case. Like not everything goes to trade. Um, although things are written for trade, right? Uh, Scholastic. 
I'm sure you remember Scholastic from like, I'm assuming you guys still had it. When I was young in school, we had Scholastic book fairs. Yeah, right? definitely. A couple times a year. Yeah. Uh, Scholastic like accounts for like 60% of the trade market, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so as a result of that, comic publishers have gotten used to doing this four issue arc thing because it's easy and, and economic. Uh, I don't want to go into the economics of, of, of comics, but that's why comics are done in multiples of eight pages hmm. uh, because the cheapest way to print a book is in multiples of eights. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, they've, they've gone through this four issue arc thing because it's, it's cheap and easy to print a trade, right? There's no cost because it's already paid for. Uh, you're just paying for the paper basically. Um, and, and, Kids love to pick up that kind of thing, right? But uh, you know, un- until like my generation dies out and is no longer buying comics, um, I think there's always going to be a place for like the current model in a way. Um, and you know, there's there's always going to be a place for indie comics, right? Like even when when nobody was com- buying comics in the in the late seventies, early eighties, like that's when you had this boom of like indie books uh, and, and fanzines and like anthology series coming out. Um, because people were trying something new and different. And then you had this like new renaissance of comics, um, you know, after like 85, 86, uh, when, you know, where like big publishers were just copying what the indies were doing, right? Like if you go back to like 87-ish, let's say, everybody had like some version of uh, the Turtles, right? Like whatever it might be, like space invading teenage squirrels, right? Like <laughs> it didn't matter, right? Whatever it was, people were buying it because it, it was just like a ripoff of this thing that was super popular because nobody was doing it. Uh, and there's always going to be that thing, right? You might have a lull for years, right? Just like in anything, right? Uh, you get this in books, you get this in movies and TV shows. You get this on like UFO Twitter, where like nothing happens for a while. And all of a sudden, it's like an explosion of things pop up. And then like people argue and they love this and they hate this. And then it dies away again. Right. It's just the cyclical nature of things. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's always going to be a place for it. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and it'll be interesting to see um, how the, the culture continues to morph uh, because regardless of how much attention is put on Hollywood with, uh, with, with superhero movies, there's always going to be the core of the culture that it's that, you know, and it's not even that there's like any sort of, vendetta against the counterculture like sometimes like comic snobs would like to put it it's just that it's not as packageable and marketable and those are just the rules of the game so that's just how the chips are going to fall but um there's there's uh, the those real uh esoteric roots are never going to die because people are always going mm-hmm. to uh, be drawn in by those movies and then there's going to be that small percentage of people that are just like how i noticed that there's some deeper mechanisms at play here. And like, these are playing with fundamental, like, Oh, I just read some, that reminds me of some old mythology. I used to know as a kid, like, I wonder how that correlates. And that, that little thing, just that little inkling, that spark of intuition that you get from enjoying any sort of art and then following that and going down those rabbit holes and seeing where that leads you, that that's the, like the alchemical process archetypally. And, you know, you have the the great phrase, uh, very simple and poignant, just you are it. Um, that's kind of the motto for your for your podcast. And I think that encapsulates this whole conversation so well. Like that's that's sort of Grant Morrison and Alan Moore's approach to life is you are it and go out and be it. 
do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Put your art out there to see, just to let whoever should gravitate towards it gravitate. But you don't even need to put it out. Just the very fact that you're engaging with that artistic process is something so inherently fundamental. Again, the whole cave painting thing. Um, And I encourage everyone to not just go, yes, to be artistic in whatever way, you know, speaks to you, but also to not just consider art as purely entertainment to, but to consider it as a conduit. That's hermeticism in and of itself. You can get into the Emerald tablets and you can squabble about the historical principles and, and you know what? I, that's for the birds, man. That's all fun. It's all trash. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> it's all trash. Yeah. Like it's good to be aware of what you're talking about, but um, um, you're missing the whole point if that's what you're focused on. We, we, the, the, the real core of hermeticism is, I think, you know, and it goes in a lot of different directions, but I think if you were to boil it down to one thing, I truly think it has to do with that fundamental nature of how you look at reality, the whole A and B level uh, time scale, and how uh, by engaging in the hermetic process, you engage with the deeper transcendental aspects of the time space and how that relates to consciousness. Um, and yeah, you know, so, you, so, you, and, and you, that, yeah, screw everything else. You know, it's like what Eric said in the last, in the last episode is if someone's telling you that they've read all these books and they know that this is it and this works, but you have something else that works, then, then who needs what they're talking about? You could take it or leave it. And if they're trying to tell you that all they, that what they have is the fundamental truth and you're wrong, then, that's the end of the comp that's end of story. You don't really need anything more from them. All, all orthodoxy is something that worked for one guy and he convinced a bunch of idiots to follow. Okay. That's all (laughs) orthodoxy. Yes. Okay. If the, if the universe is infinite possibility, then there's infinite ways to achieve anything that you want. Okay. So if you are too blind and closed off to find your own path, that's on you, right? You're never going to achieve that transcendence, right? You're never going to become the Morrison God-like figure, okay? Um, what you need to do is, yeah, listen to podcasts, read books, do whatever, okay? But just, don't just say, oh, well, you know, Anthony's doing this, so I'm going to do the exact same thing so I can get to the level of Anthony. It's not going to work for you because you're not Anthony, right? right. You're somebody else. You're Martin. You're whoever. Amen, man. Amen. Yeah. Absolutely. Hail comic books. Hail Martin Ferretti in the alchemical mind. Hail Black Hoodie <laughs> Alchemy. Um, I hope, uh, thanks everybody for tuning in. This has been, um, I really enjoyed myself and I'm, uh, it's been really nice having uh, the first two guests be friends of mine. And uh, Martin has worked with me through some minor technical difficulties that you probably won't hear in the final product. So thanks, Martin. It's the Archons, man. Yeah. <laughs> the Archons are coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, and thanks everyone seriously for tuning in. I, I will say that, you know, I just, I, I, I want to, I want to create a dialogue. I just love talking about this stuff, you know, and some people um, feel more comfortable broaching these kinds of subjects than others. And I love broaching these subjects. Some people are timid about it. I'll dive right in. And so will you, Martin. And that's why you're definitely going to be back on this show. Uh, when are you going to, you're, you, when are you going to dive back into the alchemical mind? I know you've been taking a little bit of a break there. Uh, so I think I'm going to do something uh, this weekend uh, right on. with, uh, with some information on maybe a possible change of direction in a way. Lovely. All right. I love uh, some any breaths of fresh air. So any listeners go check out Martin's action. 
Um, and you know, that's it for now. I think the next time I'm going to take a break, uh, on comic book stuff here on the show, we're going to move on to some different territory, but comic books, I feel I love them enough. And I know enough people who love them enough to where we'll definitely be talking about it more. <laughs> and I feel like, don't quote me on this, but probably the next time we do a comic book chat, I'm going to get Martin and Eric on, I think. So I think nice. that's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Nice. So thanks a lot, Martin. You're a gem of a dude. And uh, I appreciate you. Yeah, thanks, man. All right. Take it easy, everybody. Have a great night or day or time on the, the B time scale, wherever you're at. Peace. <laughs> Oh, the B time scale, nice. <laughs> um. You can hear it on the floor, the metal's clunking. My arm to war, mental function. Got me on some out the door, about to settle something. Whatever it is, whatever it was. When these wolves get the scent of blood, they never give up. I'm sick of these whack bitches who got no idea what it's like to be broke as fuck with dope ideas. You don't know what it is to be hungry on the ones on the humble. Low down, living with a stumble, people. Gates we keep, we awake, you sleep No key, still low key, we break the beat The wolves ate the sheep, can't talk is cheap Money talks, but money scared to walk the streets All I used to need was dungeon noise, bass drums And we prepared for war When I was young and I was climbing trees to reach the top My race had chop all these blind MCs Out the speaker box, a shadow box All your frequencies, your punch drunk Drunks get punched the fuck out and punked, it's hardcore More than an art form, it's all the war, it's life or death Escape the viper's nest, the carnivores From haunted shores, ghost pirates swarming one in yours Now how the fuck am I not music to the struggles, yeah My tongue is steel, cut the strings to the puppeteer I walk the line blindfolded with no lights on When the mic's on, it's countdown till your life's gone Ten, nine second intervals till I hate you Seven, six grand bags, the five-oh frames you Four, three, eight slugs bust to penetrate you One chance to live when you slip, we erase you Ten, nine second intervals till I hate you you seven six grand bags the five oh frames you four three eight slugs bust to penetrate you yeah. one chance to live when you slip continental rhyme essential who shows us the house of residential tight grip lock jive and said it's confidential manipulated cotton is the monumental the trophy